This podcast is brought to you by jewishpodcasts.org. Start your very own podcast today at jewishpodcasts.org. Wait, uh, Avi, can you press? Yeah. Right over here? Okay, perfect. Parshas Lech Lecha, everybody. Parshas Lech Lecha, 5784. Okay, a little bit of a preamble. I did not mean to write six pages over here. There is a lot of stuff here, and I actually was planning on, on splitting up and making it to two different shiurim. It's going to take me a little bit. I'm going to go as quickly as possible. There's a lot here. We're dealing with two different psukim. The pullet, the escapee came, and he told Mori. he was living in Elon Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of they're the people that had to deal with Avram, right? They were all part of the bris of Avram Avinu, Right, he told them that Lot was captured. He told Avram Avinu that Lot was captured. When Avram heard that his brother was captured, so he got everybody ready, all of his young people in the house, the people of it, you know, that he raised. Shmona also for Shlosh Meos, 318 young men. He chased them all the way until done, until the area of done itself. There is so much here. The Osnani Torah says that the greatness of Avram Vinu is that this guy who came to him was super excited did not seem to have his facts straight. He was telling him things and he was just like, oh, you'll never believe this. The Pusik doesn't say his name nor his position at all, which means he wasn't that important of a guy and he was living far away from the battle possibly along with friends, whatever it was. And Avram Vinu himself was living far away from the battle, I meant. And he was living with friends who he was protected by. He didn't have to worry about anything whatsoever. He could have stayed where he was and he would have been safe and there would have been nothing wrong. And nonetheless, even though he didn't necessarily believe the guy, even though he himself was safe, even though he had people who, was ri- who were willing to protect him, he immediately picked himself to ran after his nephew, who ran away from him not too long ago. Remember, Lot left Avram Avinu not too long ago, without knowing all the facts, and went to war, seemingly almost by himself. That is the greatness of such a person. That shows you what kind of a person, and what he's willing to do for anyone that's out there. Now, why is he called a Ivri? Now, uh, Avrama Ivri. What does that mean? Before we get to the pullet, why is he called Avrama Ivri? It's the first time that he's called an Ivri in this way. So I found ten reasons for this altogether. Ksava Kabbalah says there are three reasons right there. Either he was from a certain family of Aver. They called themselves Ivrin. After Shame the Aver. He was after Aver itself. Either number two, he was from the other side of the river, the Aver Hasheni. Other nations changed their languages when they went to different places. He kept his original language of that area. Therefore, he was known as the Ivri, the Mesopotamian from that area. Or number three, Everyone was on the other side when it came to God. They all believed in idols. They all believed in this, that, and the other. Avram Vinu was the only person who was on the other side who believed in a Kaddish Baruch Hu, and that's the idea. It seems that all three could be true, right? And he appreciated the last reason. He was from the family of Aver. He was from the other side of the river, and he appreciated where he was from. And he also was somebody who believed in God, unlike everybody else out there. M.S. Liakov gives a fourth reason, and he says in Perik Mem Pasuk Tezvav that the word Ivri refers to anyone who does not have a home. Anybody who seems to be a stranger in a strange land, like Avramini who lived in a tent, even though he had a big tent and invited people over, anybody who doesn't feel like they're at home in a certain place could be called an Ivri. They belong somewhere else. The Shin of Rebbe, Rabbi Haberstam, gives a fifth reason. It says, people are Ivrim, are people that believe that this world is only a pathway to the next world. And therefore Avramini who believed that this world was only leading us to the next world, a bridge of sorts, they were Ivrim. They were passing over from one place to the other. The Sforno says, this guy, who is unknown according to the Sforno says, he didn't know 
Rav, one was he was just an Ivri like Lot. They both had the same basic beliefs. And therefore he calls him Avram Ivri because that's why he came to Avram. He knew that they were together. Victor Miller Exodus saying his reputation preceded him, Avram Vina's reputation. All this guy knew, knew was that Avram and Lot were Ivrim. And Ivrim stick together. Similar to Jews, all stick together. Their practices were different from everybody else. Similar to the third answer of the Ksavah Kabbalah, but a little bit different. And he assumed correctly that they would stand up for one another, and that's exactly what we went to Avram because he was the Ivri. Okay, number six. The Nitziv says, uh, I'm sorry, number seven. The Nitziv says he was known as miracles as an Ivri. He was known for miracles that happened, and that's why this man expected him to do the impossible and fight against the four kings and to be able to win, because he was the miracle man. He was the Ivri man. The Ksav Sofer is number eight. He's called an Ivri because he was not worried all this time. He had complete bitachon in HaKadosh Baruch Hu. He believed in Hashem. I don't know why the word Ivri means that. And the Ksav Sofer doesn't really explain it so well, in my opinion. So he thought that he would get, he would be given everything he needed, and thus he was called the Ivri. Number nine, Rabbi Chesko, Rechio Mechofayin, in the basis of Saul Gore said the reason why Lot was taken in the first place was because Nimrod wanted to parade him around and claim that he had Avram. Avram and Lot looked very much like each other. And Nimrod had already been nailed by Avram in the Kivshana Eish. So he captured Lot, brought him around and said, look, I got Avram, look, I got Avram, right, Avram. And therefore, Avram came to be able to save his nephew. That may, be, may have been the purpose of the war in the first place, they say, to convince everyone that there is no God. And that's why Avram felt the need to fight this war and get him and that's why he's called Ivri because he wanted to keep his religion going. His Ivri religion going and that's the idea behind it. Number 10, the Itzurei Torah quotes Rav Heschel of Krakow. It says this war was, con- oh I'm sorry, this is not the 10th reason. This is why this war was considered one of the 10 Nisyonos of Avram Avinu because he had to fight to maintain his integrity right, since his evil men were lying to convince the masses that there was no God but that was all part of answer number 9. And number 10, Rav Yomi Satmer says it's because Avram was in Ivri that Og was assured, right, he would go to war and he would be able to marry his wife Sarai, as we're going to see in a little bit. How did Og, the pullet, know that he was going to agree to go after the four kings after he's so outnumbered? Because he was in Ivri, and that's what Ivrim do. That's the idea behind it. So those are the ten ideas of Ivri. If you really wanted to, you could probably combine four of those reasons together into one, right? They're all basically the same thing, that an Ivri is a person who stands up for what he believes in and he believes in God, etc. But the basic idea is that you have those ten of what an Ivri means. Yeah, uh, Shlomo, what's up? Yeah. Well, sort of, right? Because he, we're also going into where he was. He wasn't a friend. He wasn't from Mamre Amori and etc. He was the Ivri living with Mamre Amori. All three of them deal with that. But yeah, go ahead. I mean, at one point he was. Was Lot completely gone? Or in comparison to Avram Avinu, he was gone, Mikad Monash Olam. Was Lot totally gone? Or Lot still believed in God? Lot was still Zoha to Malachim coming to him. And granted, it's because Avram Avinu had a tremendous amount of schluss. But according to those opinions that Lot was able to save Soar by davening for them, Lot definitely had something. He just wasn't the same person he was by Avram Avinu. So I'm not convinced that Lot was totally off the derech, OTD, you know, when they, he went over to Stone. But yeah, number three. 
All right, good. All right, now here we go. Targum Yonason translates this Pasuk in an amazing way. He says, Og is known as the poet. Why? Because he was saved from the men who died in the Mabul by riding on the side of the Teva. So Og is the poet. Not because he escaped the war, it's because he escaped the Mabul, right? And in fact, he had a covering over his head for the rain. He put something on top of his head to save himself in the rain. He survived off food that was fed to him by Noah, which I'm sure Noah had in mind when he collected all the food for the Teva. He's like, oh, what if I have a giant standing on the side of my, my Teva? I better have enough food for him as well. So he survived from that itself. He was not saved on his own merit, says Targum Yonason, but rather because of to show people his strength so that God could say to people in the future, see, these were the people that existed before the Mabul. There were giants before the Mabul itself, the idea behind it. This made people think if HaKadosh Baruch Hu could destroy a race of giants, then he certainly could destroy us. That's the idea behind it. He was there when the four kings took over the five cities of stone, and he thought to himself, I'm going to go tell Avram that his nephew Lod had been captured. He's going to try to save his nephew from these kings, and then he's going to fall by their hands. He went to Avram. He arrived in Erev Pesach. Says Targum Yonasan, Avram was making circular matzahs. And Og told him what had happened to Lot. He really liked those matzahs, which is why he was named Og. Og comes from the word circle. The Ugos Matzos that Avram was making, that's where the name Og comes from. Avram then attempted to get his servants to help him fight, but they were too scared. Instead, he convinced Eliezer, son of Nimrod, his servant, to come with him, who was equal in strength to 318 men, and they defeated the four kings. Crazy amounts of Midrashim, this Targum Yonason over here. Crazy amounts of Midrashim that are just thrown in all together as one. The craziest thing, though, is that Avram, who was Mechanech, the son of Nimrod, to fight against his own father. One of the four kings was Amraphel. Amraphel, says Rashi, was Nimrod. Omar Vihipo, Avram Lakivshanaish. Nimrod was fought against by his own son, Eliezer, right according to the Medrash. That's an amazing thing. That is an absolute amazing thing. Rabbeinu Bechayi says this is why he's called Og, but not because he had the matzahs. It's that Sarai was making cakes, and he used to love the cakes that Sarai would bake when he used to come for Shabbos, I don't know if he went for Shabbos, whenever he would come over to Avram Avinu's house, he loved those cakes, and therefore he was called Og after the Ugos that she used to make his base on Barashas Rabba, Mem Beis, Yud Beis. And therefore, because he had the schus of going to Avram Avinu's all the time, he also knew that Lot was a relative. When Lot was captured, he ran over to tell him what was happening over here, and that's that. I would assume that Og wanted to marry Sarai because she made a lot of good cake. And that would make a lot of sense that he had a desire for Sarai for that, for the cake itself and thus he's named Og itself. It's amazing. Arashi says it's Og as well, right? He says, so based on Pshat, he says, Pshat is, this is Og, which is amazing, right? Pshat is that the Pali is Og. And he says that the Medrash above is from Medrash Rabbah. He then quotes a Medrash Tanchuma that says he wasn't a Pali from the Mabul, but rather he was a Pali, he escaped the war. He had escaped the war, ran away from the war, and went to go tell Avram what had happened. It makes sense, because it says in Parshish Devarim, Kirak Og Melechabah, he was the only remaining person from the Rephaim. And the four kings destroyed the Rephaim. So it makes sense that he was the pullet, the remaining person from there, right? And that's the idea of what we're trying to say over here. That's an amazing thing. Rokeach, of course, in Gematria, says, Ha pullet is 134. Hain Og, he says. Behold, this is Og. Rebbe Yoel adds the Rashi Tevis and Sofi Tevis of Hapolit Vayaged Le'Avram is 94. That's the same as Ze'og plus the three letters of Og's name. The Rabbi Ophaim says Vayavo Hapolit is 153, the same of same as Og Hu Hamaged. 
So a little bit of a stretch in all three gematrias. But all three Rishonim have a remez, Rabbin Yoda, Rabbin Ophim, and the Rokeach, that this is referring to Og. Either way, Rashi says that Og's intent was absolutely evil. Why? It was not to help Avram save his nephew. It's because he wanted Avram to go fight in this war, to die, so that he would be able to marry Sarai. As we said, probably for her cake. Sivse Chachamim says he only did this according to the first shot, since or the first shot that which really that he was a pullet from the war, since he would have no reason to come and tell Avram what was happening if he wasn't involved in the war in the first place. So it must be according to the idea. I'm sorry, not according to that, but if he was uh, somebody who was pulling from the mobble. Only according to that reasoning do we actually say that. That's how the Sivchamim says it. Chidah says the makor for this is the word vayagade. Vayagade means he told over, but it comes to the word godo ilana, that he cut down the tree. His intent was to cut down the tree known as Avram Avinu. That was his intent. That's what he wanted to do. The Chizkuni says this is the reason, because Og did this, this is the reason why Og lived so long. Og lived for quite a long time. We know when he died. He died in 2488. If it's the same Og, it might be a different person. Tzirkid Rebula says there were two Ogs. But if it's the same Og, then he died in 2488. The Mabal was in 1656. Okay? 1656 to 2488, he basically lived 800 years. If he was only a couple years old in the Mabal itself, I, I don't know, 20, 30 years old, whatever it is, he lived 800 something years. Why was he Zoha to live that long? Aside from the fact that he was from before the Mabal, he was given Scar for walking to Avram and telling him what had happened, even though he had evil intentions. HaKadosh Baruch who said, you will be rewarded with long life, you'll be Zoha to see millions of this man's descendants, and in the end, you will fall by those descendants because you wanted to stop him from having children with Sarai. Because you wanted to do that and you wanted to destroy him. Therefore, you will die by his children. That's how the Chizkuni puts it. The Moshe Zakenim says, even though his intentions were evil, nonetheless, something great happened to Avram from this. He passed one of the Nisyonos and he defeated the army of the four kings. Both of those were amazing things and because great things happened through him, even though that wasn't his intention, he still got rewarded for it, which is absolutely amazing. Tom but yeah. Before the Matan Torah? Before Matan Torah? I don't know. Before Matan Torah, I don't know if that applies. That Machshava Ra doesn't, you know, is not Mitzarfa, whatever it is, or Machshava Tova in a Mitzarfa. I don't know. I don't know. I would assume it still applies before. And I don't know. I can't tell you for sure. Tom Vidas, Rav Sternbuch says, oh, I forgot about this. Rav Sternbuch says, even though this concept doesn't apply by non-Jews, non-Jews cannot give tzedakah on condition that they get something good of it, and they're not rewarded for positive intentions. I forgot that I asked that right afterward. I'm sorry. I wrote this like two weeks ago. Either way, it could be that it did apply. It would apply if they're most or nefesh for it. It wasn't easy for Og to escape the war. It wasn't easy for him to escape the four kings, even though his intention was to marry Sarai, but it took a lot out of him to get out of the hands of the four kings, run over to Avram, and ask for help. So since he was most or nefesh for it, even though his intention was was bad, that mysterious nefesh that he did to tell Avram Vinu was what he was being rewarded for, and therefore everything was all good. It's possible that's the idea. The Oznayim Torah gives one more thing. He points out, this shows how how important it is to be Mishamish at Tzaddik in any way possible. If Og, all he did was tell Avram Avinu something super simple, and he only did it for an evil reason, and for that he's given long life, he's given a Malchus, and he's this great person that everybody knows about, 
that must be that that's what happens when you're Meshamesh at Talmud Chacham in the proper way. You show, you, you go up to a Talmud Chacham and you help them out in anything. And then all of a sudden there's something that's right there. You get something from it. That's the idea behind it. In fact, says Yosemite Torah, there's Machlokas as we're about to see. Some opinions say it was Og Melech Abashan, And other opinions say the Pulit was a Malach Michoel. Now that is Mamish Mina Katza El Katza. Right? Was it a Malach or was it an evil person? That's crazy. And that shows you that this was an act of greatness. Even though his intentions were evil, it still shows that he gets to be rewarded for it. And that brings us to the next one. Pirkid Rebulation Perkhabzain, Rabbeinu Bakaya, Peneach Raza, Balaturim, Chizkuni, Rukhai Paltiel, Nedazakanim. I found this in seven different Rishonim. All say this was the Malach Michoel. But you gotta hear why. When the Satan was pushed out of his place above, some say this is when Shamchazai and Azoel, the two Nephilim, fallen angels, were taken out of the sky because they argued that human beings should not be created. It, or they, Sam or Shamchazai and Azoel, tried grabbing onto the wings of Michael to bring him down as well. And a Kaddish Baruch who saved him from the hands of the Satan or from the hands of Shamchazai and Azoel, and therefore he's called a pullet. The escapee from the Satan or from Shamchazai and Azoel based on a Pasuk in Yechezko Lamed Gimel Chafalaf. That is amazing. That's the poet. Michal was the one who escaped the Satan, escaped Shamchazen Ezol. The Rokeach says HaPolit is 134, same as Zehaya Michal plus the Kolo. Razida Meir says the second letters of Vayavo, HaPolit, Vayaged, Avram is Yafi, Yud, Fe, Yud, Aleph, which is 101, which is Michal. Those ideas are right there. So we've got two different opinions, very different opinions. Og, Versus Michoel. There are a few other opinions on who this pullet was. Igrid Akala says it was Akadosh Baruch Hu himself. He was the pullet who told Avram Avinu what was going on over here. He's called Pullet Harishona when he became king, as if he's the remaining from the world before the world. I don't know what that means exactly. That's what Igrid Akala says. The Redomsker, the Tver Shlomo, says Plato refers to something very esoteric, the sparks of Kedusha that are left in the world that Moshe Rabbeinu was trying to grab and take back for himself, and that's the poet. Midrash Orafela says it was Gavriel. He was the poet. So that's another three opinions, right? Rechaim Kinyavsky brings the opinion that it was a guy by the name of Ugi, the servant of Avram, which I guess is Og, I would assume. Sefer Ayasher says that over here as well, that it was Ugi. And if you ever wanted to name a kid Ugi, you, you have something for it. Yeah, Ugi is a pretty good name. I'm, I'm, I'm in. And the last one is we mentioned the Sforno above. It wasn't anyone special. It wasn't a guy who's named. It's not a Michal. It's not a Gavriel. It's not a Kaddish Baruch It's not an Ugi. It's not an Og. It's just a random guy who happened to be. He came in and told Avram Avinu. Tzorah Amor says it could have been one of the members of the Four Kings Army whose intent was to get Avram out there to be captured or killed. Meaning a spy came and told Avram Avinu so that Avram Avinu would go so that Avram himself would be killed. Who knows? Who knows what this intention was? That's the idea behind it. Now, the Sforo makes it sound like that the guy had no idea that Lot was related to Avram Avinu. He just came, happened to know he was an Ifri, happened to be around or whatever it is. They both had the same God, and that's why he came to him. The Chizkuni says, he happened to be an Elonim Amre, meaning this guy who escaped the war happened to live in Elonim Amre. He came home, saw Avram, and was like, wow, you look like 
garbage. What happened to you? Right? And he said, like, oh, man, I just came from a war. Oh, what happened? Oh, like, all these guys got captured. And one of them was a guy named Lotz. And Avram Fino found out from that. It was just a happenstance that Avram found out about it, but not that the poet came to tell him specifically. Not that idea. After that, we get to the Bali Bris Avram. We've explained so far the first two parts of the Pesach. Bayavo a poet. So we have altogether seven answers, maybe eight, who the poet was. We've got to Avrama Ivri, ten answers as to why he's called an Ivri. He was living in the Elunay Mamre Ha'amori, right? And with, together with Ashker and Enel, and the Ashk, Ashk, Eshkol and Aner. And they were the Bali Bris Avram, friends of Avram Avinu. Now why were they called friends of Avram Avinu? So if you see, I think I have seven answers over here. They're all pretty good, but let's skip it. The next Pusik goes into the word Vayorek Eschanichov. What does the word Vayorek mean? Vayorek. And he got what? Rake means empty. Rock means only. What is Vayorek? That verb is a strange word. So Rajinuklos means he hurried to save them. He ran to get them ready for war. He ran out quickly. He didn't want to waste any more time. So he ran and got them all hurried and got them out. The Ibn Ezra, the Targi Yonason says he armed them. He armed them. These are people who didn't just learn about the meters of Hashem. They learned how to fight when they need to fight. Because that is the way of a Kaddish Baruch Hu. There are times when you sit down and you learn. And there are times when you might need to fight. And you need to know both. You need to know both. That's the Vayarik. The Kliyakar says it could be he took away their weapons from them, relying on Hashem to help them and nothing else. He knew. He knew that they wouldn't need weapons to fight this war. Arik Kharbi. I emptied my quiver, my sword, out of its sheath in order to fight. That's what we say in Az Yashir. It could be that's what he did. He literally took the weapons out of their hands, put them down on the ground and said, guys, you're not going to need it. We're going to fight in a different way. Okay, so we have three different translations right now. Either number one, hurried them. Number two, armed them. Or three, de-armed them. That's three. The Gemara in Adar and says, this may be the reason why Avram Avinu's children were exiled later on. Because he emptied them, number four, out of the base medrash. They were all learning. And he said, guys, we have to leave the base medrash. And he did angaria. He made them do his, you know, needs outside of the base medrash, taking them out of the base medrash, even though they were Tamidi Chachamim, even though they could be used in that way, he shouldn't have used them in that way, and therefore Avram Avinu was punished later on for doing this. The Chibina Rav gave a muscle to understand this. One time they hitched a heavy wagon, right, a very heavy wagon to a bunch of horses. They wanted the horses to bring it someplace, but it was too heavy and the horses wouldn't go. They started unloading some of the stuff off the wagon to make it lighter. They took this box off and this box off, but it was still too heavy. They took another box off and another box off, but it was still too heavy. So he said, you know what? Let's take off the wheels. So they grabbed the wheels which were also heavy off of the wagon right? And they said, now it'll be light enough to be able to go. But the fools said that should be in a rough. The wheels are the only thing that are going to allow the wagon to go. Those wheels are there. Meaning, you might think to yourself that the way to fight over here is that we have to empty out the base measures. We need those people, the wheels that are making us go. But the Shabina Rav says, those are the people that we need. You can't bring them into war. Those are not the right people to bring into war. And that's exactly why you can't take the wheels off. You can't have the Talmud Chamim out. And that was the fourth answer of what Bayarik means. He emptied them out of the base measures itself. In the same Gemara, the same Orikan is used to say Orikan Bidivrei Torah. He emptied out the words of Torah and then he told them do not be scared to fight. The Torah doesn't allow you to fight if you're scared. If you are scared, and I have no idea if the Israeli army does this nowadays, 
I don't think so. Right? But they tell them, you cannot be scared when you're fighting. The worst thing that can happen to an army is that they begin to run away because they're too scared. So he got them ready. And thus, by Yorek means he emptied them out. Not he emptied them out of the base matters. He emptied them out of the army. He told them, you can't be here. Get out. Leave. Go home. Because you can't be here. The schus of Torah will only allow you to fight if you're powerful, if you're potent, but not any other way. So you can't do it. Dazdekanim gives another answer. He emptied out his treasuries for them and gave them gold and silver. Why did he empty out the treasuries? He didn't want them going after the riches of the four kings. Don't worry about the money. I will give you all my money, said Avram Avinu. All I want is for you to find Lot. Find the people that are captured and don't worry about anything else. So he emptied out all of his money. And it's in the Gemara over there as well. The Oznai in the Torah says, he suggests he may have given this money to, re- money to redeem as many captives as possible. If you have this money, you might be able to get the captives out. So they only began fighting when they saw that they wouldn't take the money. And that's when they started giving over everything else. That's the Vayarik. He emptied out his own treasury to make this happen. And finally, the Chidah suggests the Medrash says, Vayarik is Horiku Penehem. He, they were embarrassed to speak to Avram Avinu because they had a claim. Why are we allowed to do something so drastic if there's no natural way for us to win this war? Who's going to allow us to go and really force a miracle to happen? How are we allowed to go? Which is a question that we'll get to a little bit later on, right? Avram Avinu emptied the armies, right? By telling them, if you have this Shiloh, don't come up to me. Don't come with me. You don't need to rely on a miracle. You can stay home. And that's the last part of Ayarik itself. Ravigdor Miller says, again, this is something unbelievably special about Avram Avinu. Not only did he teach his students all about the Torah, not only did he teach his students how to appreciate God and monotheism, he also taught them how to fight. Avram Avinu was no pacifist. This is not a guy who's going to make peace and he will never lift a finger if somebody does something against him. He went to war with the same intentions that he had when he served them chalent. When he served them chalent, he had his chesed in mind. When he went to war, he had the war in mind. The same l'shem shemaim. This is a man who had alacrity. He got everyone moving quickly. He had foreplanning. He made sure that everybody was ready to fight. And he was strategic. He fought at night and he had different places. This is a man who thought this thing through. Not a guy who just got up one day and decided, oh, well, let's fight. He planned it all the way through. And that, Rav Victor Miller, is something that's really smart. You should know, by the way, as a side note, Rav Victor Miller, when he lived in Europe, it's very famous, um, there was a bunch of people that unfortunately were anti-Semites, right? So he was learning in Europe at the time by the Mir Yeshiva, and they would go around beating up some of the guys in the Mir Yeshiva. So there was one guy there, one guy in the Mir Yeshiva who was an American, who was a boxer. Rivington was also American, but either way, he was a boxer, right? So he taught all these guys in the Mir Yeshiva how to box, right? How to really box, like all the moves and everything like that. Remember, the Jews in like the 10, 1910s and 1920s were all the little, they were the boxers, right? So he taught all of them how to box. So they started boxing, you know, beating up the non-Jews who were trying to beat them up, right? So Victor Miller was one time at a speech. He was one time at a big speech and the speech got up. This guy, his speaker got up and he started talking about cutlerism. Started making fun of Ravaron Cutler, right, and what he was doing in Lakewood. Where Victor Miller turned to the people at his table, and he's just like, how dare this person? How could he do this? And everybody else hung their heads. He was a very wealthy, powerful guy. Nobody wanted to say anything. Where Victor Miller said, okay, it's up to me. So he went up on the stage, right, and he tapped the guy in the shoulder. The guy turned to him and said, what do you want? <laughs> he punched him right in the nose. He, just, he said, I remembered my boxing moves, he told his grandson later. I remembered my boxing moves, and I punched him, and he knocked him out cold. 
And then he sat, Victor Miller just walked back down and sat down in his seat. There's an addendum to the story. The addendum to the story is that that guy was extremely powerful, right? So he told Victor Miller, I'm going to kill you. Victor Miller then told him, you should know that I already dug up a ton of dirt about you. I have it all in a safety deposit box. If anything happens to me, that safety deposit box will be opened and you will lose your family and lose your business. So you can do to me whatever you want. And that... The guy never did anything to Rev. Victor Miller. It's all, it's crazy. That's absolutely crazy. But that is Rev. Victor Miller. Like, he learned how to box if he case, in case he needed it, so he knew it. And when he needed it to beat up a guy who was talking about colorism, he used it. That, that works out well. So classic. It's ab- unbelievably classic. Okay. Now, who was the Khani Chav? Who was this guy? The guy that he brought with him. The Khani Chav. The guys that he trained. Rashi says, it's only Eliezer. He was mechanichim to do mitzvos, a language of inviting someone to do something for you that you do in the future. A kid for mitzvos is chinuch. A mizbeach for future shechting is chinuch. Chanuch kasabai is a house for living. It's all chinuch. It's all preparing a guy. Number 318, the 318 Avadim that he brought, he didn't actually bring 318 Avadim, he brought Eliezer, and Eliezer is the gematria of 318. And that's the Medrash, that's what Rashi brings, that he only brought himself and Eliezer, and that was it. Ibn Ezra says, this is Derech Drush, because the Torah doesn't talk in gematria, which is super interesting of the Ibn Ezra to say. If you wanted to, you could find any name for good or bad in any Pusik if you used gematria. As a timeout, I love how people say that to me. I could find any in Gematria. Yeah, try it. Just try it. And then come back to me. Okay, that, that's one thing. But regardless, the, he says that it really was 318 men, and that's why the Pasuk says 318, it did not mean Eliezer. That's the Ibn Ezer. The Kliyakr says, look, I agree, the Medrash is really, really strange. Why would the Pasuk give a number of men that went with Avram Avinu when there was only one person? And why does it later say that he gave portions to the men that went with him if there was only Eliezer that went with them, right? It says he gave portions, and then he gave other things to Honor Eshko and Mamre, who watched their stuff. But he, t- he only had Eliezer. If he's the only guy to go with, something's wrong. It seems that Rashi agrees, says the Kliyakar. 318 men went with Avraminu to fight this war. Because everybody has to go within the realm of nature. You can't expect a massive miracle to happen. No one goes to war with one other person with him. Even if it's Eliezer or Avram, you don't go to war with just one person. What needs to be done outside of Derech Teva could be done by Derech Nes, but he certainly wouldn't force a miracle to happen. So he brought 318 Avadim and he brought Eliezer. The question is why he specifically brought 318 men. Why that number? Was that the number of people he had in his household? Was that it? And that's that. It seems, says the Kliyakar, that this war is a really difficult one to fight to the point where Avram think he didn't have a chance to win. But nevertheless, he went to war because he knew Hashem would support his efforts to save his nephew because he was doing it L'Shem Shemayim. The smach for that, the simen, is that he took 318 servants. The number of Eli Azer. My God will help me. Yes, it's the Gematria of Eliezer. And yes, Eliezer went with the 318 slaves. But the simon was that when he saw 318 slaves put their names on the sign-up sheet to go against the four kings, he's like, that is a good simon. Eliezer is a good simon, and therefore he knew that a Kaddish Baruch was going to help, and that's why he was willing to fight. That's an amazing thing. 
Okay, it could also be that 318 Avadim is because Eliezer is equal to whatever it is. The Rabbeinu B'chaya and the Dasakanim say at first he did bring 318 Avadim. He did bring them with him to war. However, he then told them that if they're scared, they should go home. Remember, Vayorek, he emptied them out. He said, you guys are scared? Don't fight with me. And guess what? All 318 Avadim were scared. So they all went home. So we had 318 Avadim, but then they weren't there, and the only person that was left was Eliezer. Avram wakes up in the morning, he looks around the camp, and he sees that it's all deserted, except Eliezer. He's like, I'm with you, Dad. <laughs> like, that was it. It was just Eliezer and Avram Avinu, and they both went together, and that is exactly what happened. The Miam says, a few of them stayed, and among those few were Eliezer. But it wasn't just Eliezer and Avram, it was very few. HaKadosh Baruch who promised him that Eliezer would have the power of the three 318 slaves that left. And he says, that might be the seventh explanation of Vayarek. Rak is a mute. All that was left was Eliezer. And that's the idea of what it refers to. Roshach once told Rav Chaim Knievsky that there was a maskil, um, you know, like an enlightened Jew, who made a play. And in the play, he made a war, a Jewish war against their enemies. But they would fight this war the way the Torah says you're supposed to fight. So they got up there, and the Kohen got up there, and he said, okay, who here is scared of war? So a bunch of people raised their hands. They all went home. Who here has gotten married within the year? A bunch of people raised their hands, went home. Who here has built a house within the year? A bunch of people raised their hands, went home. All right, who here has built a field or made a business in the past year? A bunch of people raised their hands, went home. The only people that were left were the Chafetz Chaim and Rechaim Ozerkuzhansky. Those are the only people left. So they came to a cannon. They had one cannon between the two of them. This is all part of the play of the Moscow, said Rav Shach. They had a cannon between them, right? So Rechaim Oizer said, oh, Chofetz Chaim, you should light the cannon. And the Chofetz Chaim said, oh, no, the God Ador, you should light the cannon. And he said, but you're a Kohen. He said, but you wrote the Sefer Achiezer. You wrote the Chofetz Chaim, right? They went back and forth and back and forth. And finally said, oh, we'll do it together, right? And they took the light and they lit it. And then the, the curtains came down. So Rechaim, uh, Rav Shach said, the play was 100% Emes. What they didn't show was the end. That in that cannonball, Rechaim Ozer and the Chavetz Chaim defeated the other army. Destroyed it. They thought they were making a joke out of it. But the truth was, Avram and Eliezer were good enough to be able to take down the entire army by themselves. It wasn't a Shiloh. That's exactly what it was. Now, there are other things over here. The Yalkaruveni says Eliezer stands for something else entirely, right? Eliezer, if you take the Aleph of Eliezer and you turn the Aleph into a thousand, the name Eliezer, really, if Aleph is a thousand, is the gematria of 1,317. Because think, Eliezer is 318. So if you take the Aleph minus one and you add a thousand, it's 1,317. And it's the same gematria as Nesher Shor Aryeh Adam, the four sides of the Kisya Kavod. And that's what fought with Avram Avinu. It's not Eliezer that fought with Avram, it's the Shechina that fought with Avram Avinu. And that's why he was able to defeat the war. That's the idea behind what Eliezer stands for. Bali Tosvos goes into another thing altogether, but regardless. The Miam Loes says when Avram made the decision to go after the four kings, he was able to walk ten days of traveling in one day because the mazel of Jupiter was very strong at that moment and he knew how to use it properly. I have no idea what that means. I, I use Jupiter all the time, but it doesn't work that way. Right? When he began to fight, the malachim that he created from his tzedakah 
came and begged HaKadosh Baruch Hu to help him, and that's why he was saved from that situation. As we all know, he picked up straw and it turned into spears. He picked up dirt and it turned into swords. The swords and spears that were thrown at him turned into more spear, more dirt and straw that he was able to then throw back and it became swords and spears. There were Rishayim who turned Rachamim into Din. So therefore, for them, the Rachamim, the dirt, turned into din and became swords for them. And the opposite, a tzaddik turns din into rachamim. So their swords turn into dirt for Avram Avinu. That's how the Mi'amloiz explains it. And it's all in the discourse of the fact that he says later on, Vanochi offer ve'efer, that I am but dirt and dust. Ayala Sashachar asks what, what he would have done, if, why he would have done this, if it's not even the realm of his shtadlis. Who goes to war picking up dirt and throwing it? <laughs> like, where did that come from? It's not even in the realm of this is what you could do in a war and you might win. Like, okay, granted, you might not have a lot of swords, so at least you have one sword and swing it as much as you can. But to pick up dirt, have you ever heard of this? Like, taking it and just throwing it as much as you can? That's just ridiculous. Although it's possible that Nachamish Gamzu gave that dirt to Domitian, famously the brother of Titus after the destruction of the second base of Mikdash, and that's how he won his war against Germany. He became known as Germanicus because of that. There's only one war that Domitian ever fought, and it was fought in a miraculous fashion. Even the Romans agree to this, not just the Jews and Titus, right, that go into this. Even the Romans agree that in Germanicus, when he became Germanicus, he won in a fashion that nobody else understood. It could be that it was through this dirt. Regardless, totally beyond the range of Ishtadlis itself. There is more. The Kedush Slavi says that 318 is the gematria of Siach because he davened. He davened to Hashem and that's what allowed him to win this war. Reb Beis suggests that this might be what the woman meant when she said to Reb Nachman in Sukkah Laman Aleph Amen Aleph, right, that she was the granddaughter of a man with 318 servants. I have the power of tefillah, said the woman. I have siach. How could you not listen to me? But that's another story for another time. There's a Tosis in Sota. It's also a crazy, so you can look it up yourself. Okay, where was Don? He went by Yirdof Ad Don. He went all the way to Don. Do I have seven minutes? Okay, I'm going to go really quickly. Revali Kaplan the Living Torah suggests that it was a city at the northern end of Israel, 12 miles north of Lake Hula, 120 miles north of, of, of Hebron. I don't know where it is. I tried looking it up. The Redak suggests it was an ancient name given to the city, not based on Shevet Dun, who would come later on. It was just known as Dun, even though there was a Shevet Dun later on. Rav Sadigon says it was near the Banyas River. Why did he stop by Dun? Rash says because this area would eventually be owned by Shevet Dun. They would do Avodah Zarah there, and because of that, it became weak, and therefore he couldn't go on from then on. Sforno says he ran really fast to catch them by surprise. Remember, he had Kfitz Zaderech, according to the Amloes. He caught up with them in the land of Dun. It seems strange that the four kings were there, however. I don't understand it at all. The four kings fought against the five kings in Sodom in that area. So they went to Dun? Why would they have gone up that way and gone there? I have no idea where they would have gone. Like, why they would have gone there in the first place. Either way, it was a really far walk. I have no idea why they would have gone northwest, unless somehow they were trying to get to somewhere else. Ksava Kabbalah says this might be the western area of Eretzol. If you look at any map that has Shevet Dun, there's going to be a Machlokas. Either Shevet Dun is here, because they owned the areas of Tel Aviv, Yafo, Bnei Brak. That area right there all belonged to Shevet Dun. And then they're also up there. 
That's because Shevet Dan later on took over the cities called Laish and Leshem, which are all the way up there, and that's at the end of Shoftim. That's where Pesel Micha comes from. As they were traveling all the way up there in order to defeat those lands, they passed by and they took Pesel Micha and they grabbed it. So they had this land and they had that land. Who says the Dun that they ran to was up there? Maybe the Dun that they ran to was over here, right by the coast, by the Mediterranean, and that's where he got to. That That's possible. I, I, I think that makes a lot more sense to me and where it was, right? That's like Sava Kabbalah says. He says it's near Caesarea, Caesarea nowadays, which is right by Tel Aviv, near Tel Aviv at least. Tagim Yushalmi says something about this and whatever it is. Oznaim Latorah says, here's the reason why they had to go up north, and it had to be up north. We see that Avraminu went throughout the land of Israel in the south, the east, and the west, but we never see him going up north. We don't know anything about anything that happens up north. HaKadosh Baruch who made it that he chased after them all the way to the north so that he would be in that area and make it Kadosh and easy for his children to conquer later on. The southern and western and eastern areas he was able to get then, but the northern area he hadn't been to, and that's why it happened right over there. Then Nitziv said he didn't want to go past that area because past the border of Eretz Yisrael he might not have the schuss to be able to defeat them, so maybe he wouldn't be able to do it. And the Tosefa's bracha says the craziest thing, it's in the Torah Tamima as well, that it might not be done. It might be didun. And quite often, he says, you will see there are words in the Torah that are missing a letter on purpose. And this area of done might be missing a letter on purpose. It's didun. But the Chizkuni says that obviously this was not the name of the area at this point because let's think for a second. At the times of Avraminu, there was no Shevet done. But even in the times of Moshe Rabbeinu, when the Torah was written, Shevet Dun did not go to an area all the way up north because Shevet Dun, they were still in the Midbar at the time. They didn't own the land of Israel yet, which means Shevet Dun wouldn't have been in Eretz Yisrael. So says the Chizkuni, you can't even say that Moshe Rabbeinu called it based on what it was going to be in the future. There was no name in the future because Shevet Dun wasn't there when Moshe Rabbeinu wrote the Torah. So unless Moshe Rabbeinu was writing about what Dun would get in the future, which is really strange, there's no way that was, that's the way it was going to be. Ravik Danilo suggests an answer that Similar, Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky has a crazy answer. He says that Leshem and Laish originally had an idol there. That idol's name was Dun, and Dun took over the area after that, and that's why they continued to bring an idol there because it was a Tame place. It's a crazy answer, but that's Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky. Um, I've got two minutes. I'm going to do it really quickly. Everyone assumed, everyone asked the question, why did Avramino assume a miracle was going to happen for him? Why did Avramino assume that he was going to be able to fight this war and everything was going to be okay? Right? What was he expecting over here? I have seven answers. One based on what we said up above, but that idea. Number one is he mamish thought he was going to be able to redeem Lot with money. He did not think he was going to have to fight the war. Only when he saw a malachim with him. Kfitzu saderech. And if the Shekhinah above his head, that's when he knew he was supposed to fight. And that's why he fought. He would not have done so otherwise. That's from the Zohar. Or Aryeh brings that down. All of that. Shach says that Avraminu was a tikkun of Adam Rishon and he made people scared whenever anybody was around him. Because he was that tikkun, he had nothing to worry about and that's what he did. Ayala Shachar says he knew that a massive Kiddush Hashem was going to happen after this war. So therefore, he, nature meant nothing to him in such a situation. I can make a Kiddush Hashem. I'm willing to do anything. Rav Strombuk says that he understood people in his household would be scared and they wouldn't want to say, they wouldn't want to come with them. They would say, maybe, and it's not worth being a relative of Avram because people are going to come after you, they're going to capture you, and they're going to take you as captives in war. So it's not worth it. So he had to do this in order to convince people that in the future, that won't happen to them. And if it does, he'll go after them just like he went after the four kings themselves. Bear Yosef says he was worried that he had promised Lot that if anything happens to him, he would save him. 
So when something happened to Lot, he immediately went to go save him. That's exactly what he was scared of. Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky says he absolutely was putter, but nonetheless he felt that the right thing to do was this, and therefore he did it. And our final answer to Daruga Zabosam. Avram realized he was not afraid at all. He had complete bitachon and akadosh baruch that he was going to succeed, and therefore he, not anybody else, but he was permitted to put himself in danger here. Us, we wouldn't be able to put ourselves in danger with just one other person or 318 above them and go to war against four kings. But he felt he could because he wasn't a normal person. He understood himself very well. He knew that this was not his own taivas or his own kavod or his ego that's letting him fight this war. He knew it was his bitachon in his Kaddish Baruch who was going to let him do. And a person with bitachon is way powerful than anyone else thinks. Such a person would be permitted to go. And he bases all this in a medrash, if you look over there. Right, but that's what the Arugas above says, those are the seven answers. So we've explained all today who the poet was with our seven answers. We've explained Ivri and the ten answers why he's called Ivri. We explained why they were called, oh, we didn't do the Balagris of Ram, right? I skipped that entirely. Then we explained Bayorek, we explained Hanichov, we explained the 318, we explained Dun, we explained why you did this in the first place. It was a lot, but nonetheless, I think we finished up this. All right, Shkak, everybody, have a great Shabbos. <laughs>